Amen. Well, thank you all again uh, so much for uh, coming tonight. And I think this week is going to be um, our last week, uh, most likely in um, the series that we've been uh, doing on Sunday nights uh, through the concept of worship. And, and last time, if you remember, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we talked about private worship and we talked about uh, the spiritual disciplines of uh, scripture reading and uh, prayer and fasting. And today we're going to kind of take a little different look uh, at the concept of corporate worship, of corporate worship or our communal devotion to God. And we're going to look um, uh, at that in First Peter chapter 2. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's pray again uh, together. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the men and women that you have gathered here and we just pray, Lord, that again, as we gather tonight, Lord, that your word would, as the book of Hebrews says, be living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of uh, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, um, search, uh, searching the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, Lord, we just pray that your word, uh, Lord, would just um, be which just speaks powerfully, Lord, to our hearts and our minds tonight by your Holy Spirit, and that we would be a people who worships mightily the one true God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can, you can go ahead and turn with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And in this text, um, Peter is talking about well, at least in the context of this passage, at the end of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, he's talking about holiness and the concept of, of what it means uh, to be holy. He quotes the scripture there in chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then in chapter 2, he goes on and talks about this concept of uh, holiness um, with regards to the church uh, corporately. And in chapter 2, in this rather famous passage, uh, Peter takes these, this strong and this rich Old Testament language that, that God used for Israel. And yet, he uses that same language, and yet he refers to the church. And now, I think this has profound theological implications uh, because it seems to me that Peter understands that the promises that God made to Israel are being fulfilled in the church. But what I want to look at specifically tonight is I want to look at these, the way that Peter describes uh, the church here, uh, the people that God is setting apart for himself, because that's what holy means, right? Holy means to be set apart, to be to be taken from out of and set apart for a special and unique purpose, namely for God. And so I want to look in this passage and see um, what uh, Peter is telling us and what God is telling us uh, how we're supposed to live, not just individually, but as God's people in corporate worship. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? And we're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of God may be seated. So the first thing that I want us to see tonight is that God's goal, uh, God's goal, and really, I mean, even as we're talking about the storyline of Scripture on Sunday mornings, God's goal, we could say, in one sense, is a people for himself. Um, Jesus talks about, um, in, that, in that passage where he says, he says um, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He, he, it's this sense that, that uh, God has, um, is, is pulling out a people for himself, a people from the world, a people to belong to Jesus Christ, a, a prized possession for uh, himself to belong to him. And in this passage here, Peter uses uh, both uh, individual and corporate analogy. He says, he says when you come, in verse 4, that he says, As we come to him, a living stone rejected by men, and, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the living stone who was rejected by men, but in God's sight is very precious. And he says, You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So individually, Peter, uh, Peter's saying that we are living stones. But think about it in this analogy. When you, are, you, know, when you quarry for stone, and so that you, you cut stones out of the rock, to, so you, you don't do that so that you can just have a big pile of bricks, right? You cut stones out of the rock, Why? So you can bind them together because only bound together can you build a house, right? So we, like living stones, are being pulled apart, set apart by God from the world, not just so he can have a a pile of individual stones, but so that he can bind us together and build a house for himself. You see? So in other words, that... God is, is thinking not just in individual terms, but in corporate terms. We together are being built together into a temple for God. And, you, and you, now, we, we, it's easy to gloss over that, but this is, this is really huge because think about it. The Jews, their whole, their whole life was centered around temple worship. That's, what it, that's, that's, all, they, that's all they knew. And, when, and so, I mean, 
when the, the temple was destroyed, the Jews, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, I mean, it totally obliterated, you know, their, their whole sense of identity, the whole sense as a nation, because their temple was gone. How, how are they going to now interact with God? But see, they missed it. They missed what Jesus Christ came to do, and that is Jesus himself told the Samaritan woman, he says, I tell you, a day is coming and is now here when we will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But, but God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, that God, uh, God through Jesus Christ is pulling us together and all of us who turn from our sins and embrace Christ by faith, we together are God's temple. And since we are bound together by the blood of Christ, we are the place where God is present. Not in a house, not in a physical building, but in a people. And so it's just important to recognize in our very individualistic society that it's not just about us as individual Christians, but it's about us corporately as the church. That is, it's conceivable, it's at least conceivable um, that God could have just saved a bunch of people and they just kind of do their own Christian thing, you know, and don't really interact that much and just kind of do their own Christian thing. And some people, by the way, think that's what that's that's what it's supposed to be that's clearly not god's design god instituted the church as a living organism not merely so that uh, individuals find forgiveness of sin but that these same people who are who are joined with christ by faith and are forgiven of sin are then bound together and united into an eternal family In such a way that because Christ has now become their Lord and their Savior and their Master and their King, that their allegiance to Him is now so supreme that that it enables them to overlook other issues, overlook other differences, overlook other things that cause division. and and, And it enables them to unite together through Jesus Christ a people who are different in color, culture, language, personalities, gifting, upbringings, etc., All these things fade away in the light, as it were, of God's glory and grace. In other words, that under Jesus Christ, we are not just discrete individual Christians, but we are one people united in an eternal family. And this this actually makes perfect sense. Why? Because God is more glorified in not just saving individuals, but in bringing a diverse people together who by the fact that they can come together and overcome their differences because of their shared unity and shared submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, that brings God more glory than if he just saved a bunch of people who just kind of did their own thing. Why? Because it's hard work to get along with people. And if you can get along with people that the world says, how in the world can they get along? And you say it's through Jesus Christ, that tells them something about Jesus. Yeah, it's one, th- it's one thing to say, oh, it gives God a certain glory for sure to, for if someone sees your life and say, oh, well, he's a nice guy. But I would say, and I would argue, it, actually, it gives God greater glory to say, my goodness, how do those people get along? And you say, because Jesus Christ has changed us. We give God more glory together. Uh, John Piper illustrates it this way. He says, in music... There is a kind of beauty, we just, you know, we just sang here. In music, there is a kind of beauty that arises from four-part harmony among singers that is different 
from the beauty of powerful sounds in unison. There is a kind of beauty in the unified symphony of instruments that is different from the beauty of the solo virtuoso. In sport, there is the beauty in a stunning individually perf- individual performance of a star basketball player, but a different beauty in the perfectly executed plays by the team as a whole. There is more beauty when the corporate assists under the basket complements the outside shots. In the military, feats of individual heroism are beautiful, but there is another beauty when great movements of troops are orchestrated with flawless precision to bring about a victory for the entire army. Therefore, when human beings with diverse ethnicities, backgrounds, tastes, expectations, desires, priorities, peeves, admirations, and needs join their hearts and minds and voices and actions in unified worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ, a reality has come into the world that is beautifully fitting. It befits the power and the worth of God whose glory can win such humble, self-forgetting praises from a diverse people. I think he's right. I think that the fact that Jesus Christ comes and unites the people of every nation, tribe, and tongue brings him far more glory than um, individualistic salvation. And this is the plan of the Bible. This is God's goal, a people for himself. And it's, it is clear throughout the whole Bible. You know, you just have to think about it. Uh, when God uh, created Adam and Eve, he didn't just say, okay, you two glorify me, go at it. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because he didn't want just two. He wanted a whole world full of people to image his glory in the world. Not just two. And uh, even more, think about when, um, when God chose Abraham. What was God's pro- He didn't just say, Abraham, go glorify me. What did he promise Abraham? I will make you a father of many nations. And even Moses, through the Exodus, they, they went in, um, they went in to, to Egypt, uh, you know, several, several dozen, and they came out in the millions. And when God uh, delivered them and took them to Mount Sinai uh, and gave the law to Moses, it wasn't just the law of what you're supposed to do individually, although there was some of that, but there was laws about how they were supposed to uh, behave corporately. And, and hold feasts and festivals to him. And then we move to the New Testament. And then we see that um, the church is, the word church is used uh, a great number of times in the New Testament. And sometimes, you know, in our modern usage, sometimes we can confuse the terms or conflate the idea with a building. We say this is the, you know, this is Cottondale Baptist Church. But in reality, the Greek term, you, it couldn't be used that way because the word literally meant congregation. So if we were to be very literal, we would say the congregation of Cottondale rather than Cottondale Baptist Church. Because the word church in Greek literally means a gathering of people. So when it refers to church in the New Testament, it's always, always referring to people. And the church is the preferred way to, to refer to what God is doing in the world. A people for himself. And, and think, think about all these words that are used to describe the church in the New Testament. Body, household, bride, flock, church, temple, house, priesthood, race, nation, possession. All these things are used 
I would say to show the corporate nature of God's people. That is, we are, we're not just individuals who love God. We are a people together who love and serve him. And so first we see that God's goal is a people for himself. And the second, and the, 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 the rest of the things I want to see is I just want to look at some of the descriptors that Peter uses for the church and kind of uh, relate these to the idea of corporate worship. And so the next thing I want us to see in our corporate worship is that we need each other to serve. We need each other to serve. One of the aspects of the way that we worship corporately is through our service. In verse 9 there, in second, uh, 1 Peter 2, he says that the church, that we are a royal priesthood. <laughs> Think about it. I talked about it this morning, right? What, 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 what is... What did, what did I say that uh, we were made to be by God? Kings and queens. Well, what, is this, what does this call us here? Royal priests. That's not an accident. We were made to be kingly priests. Priests and kings. And what is one of the primary uh, purposes of a priest? To serve. To serve God. And you remember, I think it was the very first sermon in this series, I said that when God told Adam in the garden, he told him to work and keep it. And if you remember, I said that the only other place in the Bible where those two words are used together in that way is when it describes the duties of the priests and the Levites and their duties with regard to the tabernacle. Priestly duties. In other words, it's a pointer for us, that Adam was made to be God's priest. Even in the very beginning, he was a priest. He was a priest king in the temple garden, in a garden temple. That's what he was made to do. That's what we were made to do. And notice this too, that this duty that God had given Adam, all of humanity, to be his priest king, again, he didn't just say, go and do it. He showed, animal, he, showed, he showed Adam all the animals of the earth. And then he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him what? A helper. Fit for him. What does that mean? It means Adam could not do what he, God commanded him to do by himself. He needed another. And that's how God has designed this to work. We cannot do, we cannot be faithful Christians. We cannot do what God has called us to do without each other. We cannot do, perform our service to God that we are called to perform without each other. And so think about it. What, is one of the, what was one of the key duties of a priest? Well, one of the key duties of a priest is to offer sacrifices, one of the key functions of a priest. Well, look back in First Peter 2 there, uh, verse 5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We see this, this concept also in Philippians uh, chapter 4. And this is what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, uh, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words... We as a people are set apart by God to be a royal priesthood so that together we can fulfill our priestly duty of offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Everything that the Old Testament pointed to is found in us. We don't offer, we don't slice the, thro- the, the throats of, uh, of bulls and goats, but we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. In, in love and service, just like the Philippians who provided for Paul's needs while he was in prison. And it says they had offered spiritual sacrifices. And again, it's not something that they could just do individually. It's something that they all did together. And so God's goal is the people for himself. Number two, we need each other to serve. And number three, we need each other for holiness. We need each other for holiness. Again, in verse 9, It says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A holy nation. Now, I've I've talked about before in the past how we need each other for our personal holiness, and that's uh, completely true. We need each other, as I said, to to encourage us, to exhort us, to um, confront us if need be, to strengthen us, to encourage us in our walk with the Lord. But I want to think about this idea of Corporate holiness, that is not just we as individuals have holy behavior, but we as God's people are set apart from the world and are distinctly different. We are, the Bible says, a a peculiar people. We are are sojourners, strangers, exiles. We are people who live in a world that is not our home. We have a home. We're just not there yet. We're people who... But belong to another kingdom and another king. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Though at present we uh, live in this present age. And so, how do we reflect this set-apartness in the world? Where, Well, uh, in the context of corporate worship, you know, I would just say that one of the ways we do that is our, is our, is our Sunday gatherings. One of the ways that we show our set-apartness as the people of God is our willingness to set apart a day to worship the Lord. And, and think about it. This, this would have been, obviously, uh, a lot more clear uh, in the days of the Jews, right? Because I think one of the strong, one of the strong evidences... <laughs> of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the fact that very, very early in the church, devout Jews begin worshiping on Sunday. How do you explain that? Because what's the Jewish Sabbath? Saturday. How can you explain that Jews who were Jews their whole lives, who were devout worshipers of, of, of God, all of a sudden start worshiping on Sunday? Well, it's because for them, it was the Lord's day, the resurrection day. And so in that Jewish context, when all all these Jews get together, 
But then you have a group of Jews over here, and all of a sudden they're worshiping on Sunday. That would say something about what, who their allegiance belongs to. You see? It was evident that the fact that they gathered corporately on Sunday was a testimony of their set-apartness, their, whole, the, their holiness their, uh, to God. And so, um, and, and I would just say that increasingly so, as our culture uh, shifts more and more away from uh, e- even uh, uh, endured, ac- endured acceptance of Christianity to open disdain of Christianity, as we move further and further in that direction, the fact that you would be willing to wake up on Sunday morning and get dressed and get your kids dressed on Sunday morning and, and while all your other neighbors are, are sleeping in, is going to become is going to more and more say something to those in our communities. And so one of the ways we do do that is our corporate worship. A lot of people today, I talked to somebody the other day, and they just said, well, it's the only day of the week I got to sleep in. Well, that's fine, but all I'm saying is that when you sleep in rather than go to church, all you're telling your neighbors is that your sleep is more important to you than Jesus or it's more important to you than corporate worship. I mean, if you, if you do it every Sunday, that's what you're telling people. So in other words, the fact that we are willing to say, look, Jesus Christ is so important to me that I will set apart this day for God, it really does say something in the world. Now, of course, Going to church on Sunday doesn't automatically make you a Christian, by no means. Um, and as I said, cultural and social Christianity uh, is, is, is really going out. You, there was a day, and you remember, when uh, just being in church on Sunday had, you know, it was, you know, social standing was involved, social appearances. You might even, you might even uh, sell one of your, your members some more insurance, you know. It's a way to make connections, Okay. No offense, Pat. <laughs> I know that's not true of you. But we'd be fooling ourselves to think some people didn't do that. Okay? And so, and so in the past, because church was just more of an accepted part of culture, people just felt more pressure to go, so they showed up, whether they were there for the right reasons or not. And so uh, as time goes on and things like that change, I think one of the reasons we've seen such a huge decline in church attendance is not just a fewer and fewer people getting saved, although that's, I think that's true. But I also think it's because uh, there's just less there's there's less social benefit to going to church. There was a time when it benefited you socially to go to church, but since that's totally gone, and in fact now the opposite is true. If someone finds out you go to church, in some places you could lose your job. Not implicitly, but explicitly. Oh, you know, so and so goes to church. Oh, we may have to phase him out. We'd be fools not to think that don't happen in certain parts of the country. So the more, but I, but I want to say, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that the church is designed to be for people who love the Lord because spirit-filled worship can't happen in a room full of people who aren't filled with the spirit. And so, and so I don't necessarily think that's a, a bad thing, but, it is, but all that to say that the way we worship God and our, our corporate worship and our set-apartness, a, a, an important part of that is our willingness to say, I'm going to set aside this time for 
the Lord, and it will become more and more foreign to God, and I think, to, to the world, and I think that one of the most powerful, one of the most powerful testimonies to God, to an, to an unbeliever, is if there, if, if, is if an, an unbeliever, uh, and, and Paul, and Paul says, and Paul says this in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, about how if a believer, if an unbeliever comes in among you, and the Spirit is present. You say the, 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 the thoughts of their hearts will be disclosed and they'll, they'll bow down and say, surely God is among you. In other words, one of the greatest testimonies of the evidence of God is a powerfully worshiping people of God. And so that's why our, our corporate gathering is, is so essential. And that's why uh, we must strive to come and to come with hearts prepared uh, to and, and with with hearts clean hands and pure hearts to come and worship the Lord to worship our God that's why you know I encourage you you know sometimes you know you may be embarrassed you know you don't have a singing voice I don't have a singing voice but look it's not a performance we're not rehearsing lines we're praising God so sing sing like you mean it because you do Right? Sing. Praise God. Cry out to him. It, it, I mean, it's okay. I mean, I, I know. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to go all charismatic on you. But look. You know, you just can't blame someone who, if a, if a person didn't grow up in Christian. I'm not saying you have to be all charismatic to worship the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying that if a, someone who doesn't know Je- Jesus comes in here and we're singing to God and we're like this. My, 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 my. They're going to think, do they even believe what they're, they even believe that? What are they doing? You see what I'm saying? If we're here to worship God, let's worship God. And this, this sets us apart. This is what we are set apart for, a holy nation to worship the Lord. And so God's goal is a people for himself, and we need each other to serve, and we need each other for holiness. And fourthly, and finally, we need each other for proclamation. Uh, in verse 9 again, it says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why did God do this? Why did he set us apart for himself in this way? He tells us, so that you may proclaim excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Together, we proclaim Christ. And as I just said, in our corporate worship, that's one way we do that. And there, there's, there's other ways uh, that I've talked about, and uh, we do that in uh, one of my recent sermons about community evangelism. That is that together as we Love one another. They'll know you by your love for one another. And as we love our community through Jesus Christ, and as we um, uh, reach out uh, in faith and in love and obedience and in sacrifice, and we proclaim the excellencies of our God, what, what will he do? He'll save people. He'll save people. And, and that's what we're doing. And think, think about it. It says we're proclaiming the excellencies of him you know if if you 
I've used this illustration before, but like, if you have something that has revolutionized your life, you're going to tell people about it. If you've been really sick and someone says, I got an essential oil for that, and you rubbed it all over your body, and you got better, you're going to say, my goodness, you got to try this. You're going to. That's just what you're going to do, right? Uh, you know, we, we do that all the time, all the time. Things that have been important to us, things that have really changed us, things that have re- you proclaim it's excellencies, and we are saying we have a great God who has greatly saved us. And so it should be the easiest thing in the world to proclaim his excellencies, to sing his praises, to say, let me tell you what God has done for me. That's why we've been saved. That's why we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. And so that's why we are are set apart for him. And so as I close tonight, I just extend an invitation as I always do. We're in a family. We're a family. We're God's people. We're God's... Uh, we're, we're, we're citizens of, a, of a, a heavenly kingdom. And we're awaiting, Paul says, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to attain the resurrection of the dead, to, to uh, gain entrance, to, to have our, our, uh, our citizenship uh, confirmed and to enter into our home when this world passes away. And I pray tonight that everyone in this room has that hope. And if you don't, you can through Jesus Christ, through turning from your sins and surrendering to him. And then you too will know all the excellencies of him, our Lord and Savior. You can proclaim.